well hello there and welcome to the psych patient podcast episode one okay so this is a podcast for all my people out there who struggle with their mental health um and anyone else who wants to learn about the reality of living this crazy busy life while battling mental illness I want this to be a support system and a community for all of us out there battling our brains on the daily, Um, a place to learn from each other's stories and a place to share quotes and books and music and coping skills that have helped others with their mental health fight and a place to make fucked up jokes about mental health that only psych patients and other people in this mental illness battle are allowed to make. That's an important one really weird sitting in my kitchen talking to myself but you know here we are I myself am fresh off of a stay in the psych ward which is where I got the inspiration for starting this podcast I was sitting in a group therapy session one day and thinking about how lucky I am to have the supportive friends and family that I do because I really am very lucky And then I was thinking about all the people that were in the group with me and noticing how we all feel things so deeply and everyone in the group was just so compassionate and wise. And I was wondering about their support systems. Like, do these, I wonder if these people have a good support system to go home to and kind of hoping that they did. And then I was sitting there thinking about it and I thought, I want to create a support system for people who are struggling like me and like the other people in this group. So here we are. This was my first stay in a psych ward for, you know, depression and shit. Your, you know, your average suicidal ideation attempt all that fun stuff, you know what I mean? I've done a partial hospitalization program, also referred to as a PHP before, but it was over Zoom. So this was my first time physically in a psych ward. I was in there for nine days. It felt like a year. I feel like it was such a surreal experience. But I'd say it was a positive one overall. I sound a little unsure about that because I'm still kind of processing everything. I didn't want to be there. Like, at all. (laughs) But I also logically recognized that it was a necessary step to keep myself safe and to come up with a treatment plan in a safe, controlled environment. And I did it at the suggestion of um, my son's therapist and some of my family members um, knowing that I was going through a hard time and um, kind of it coming to a peak. And then I went in with zero direction, zero hope, zero inspiration, truly, truly, truly. 
and came out with a tiny glimmer of hope, a little more direction and inspiration for this podcast. So there you go. In all honesty, nine days seems like a long time to me, but suicidal episodes themselves, in my experience anyway, can really fuck you up for a while. This was not my first rodeo with a suicidal episode. I've had many over the past like five years, but this was probably my first, this was, I I won't say probably, this was my first uh, suicide attempt. And um, it's taking me a while to bounce back. But I am hopeful that the plan of action my treatment team came up with in the psych ward will lead me to more healing and better coping in the future. Fingers are so crossed. I wanted to read my journal entry from day four in the psych ward. Today feels like it's been about a week long. That being said, I feel like I've gotten just a teeny tiny spark back in my soul today. I can feel just the tiniest little candle burning down there. Part of me wants to blow it out until it shush, and part of me is glad that it's there. As the doctor put it today, I'm resigned to live. And if I'm going to live, I need to get that spark back and learn to live for the little things again. Baby steps. Baby spark for my baby steps. I got an idea for a podcast today. I'd call it Psych Patient, and it would be convos with psych patients and other people who've struggled a lot with their mental health. I think this idea is what brought back some of my spark. Another, who knows if I'll ever follow through on that idea, but I hope that I do. Hoping for something to happen in the future is a baby step in the right direction. P.S. Donna came to visit today. It was so lovely to see her. I had some great visitors and feel very lucky about that. They definitely helped my days be not quite so weird. I felt like myself for just a minute when my visitors would come. So I still feel very zoned out and not quite connected to myself and to what I've been experiencing for this past month that has led up to my stay in the psych ward in clinical terms you could say I've been feeling disassociated. I was so out of my comfort zone for nine days with basically you're turning over your life and almost like your body and everything to clinicians and even though it was voluntary, begrudgingly voluntary I'll say It was still really weird to have so little access to all of my things and to the outside world. I have heard like pretty bad horror stories about people's psych ward stays and luckily I went to a really incredible facility and they took, at least in my experience, they took very good care of all of us and so I don't have any fun horror stories to share. While I was in the psych ward, I found reading to be uh, one of my main ways of passing any free time that I had, reading and journaling primarily. There was one book that the clinicians recommended to all of us called The Happiness Trap, 
I preferred the Illustrated Happiness Trap by Russ Harris and Bev Aisbet. Don't know if I said that right. Because it was less wordy and a quicker read. And I definitely would recommend that book. I still need to finish it, in fact. I need to go buy myself a copy because I didn't get through it while I was in there. Um, I got through maybe like the first half. But it's acceptance and commitment therapy based and that's also known as ACT. So you may have heard of that. I also read The Midnight Library by Matt Haig and that was a really timely read. If you've read it, then you understand why. It had been on my nightstand on my to-read list forever. And so when I was packing up my clothes and stuff to go to the psych ward, I decided to grab a few books and that was one of the ones that I grabbed. Uh, it's a It's a story about a girl who is in like very similar circumstances to a lot of us that are feeling hopeless and she ends up attempting suicide and the premise is that between life and death there is a library and she visits that library after her suicide attempt and she is able to go through and experience different paths that she may have taken if she had made different decisions in her life. And um, I wrote down a couple of the quotes from the book in my journal. This was also, I think this book was also part of where I started getting my spark back while I was in there. So thanks to Matt Haig for that. I know he himself struggles with mental health and suicidal ideation and things like that. And so one of the quotes really hit me. It says, she no longer felt she was there simply to serve the dreams of other people. She no longer felt like she had to find soul fulfillment as some imaginary perfect daughter or sister or partner or wife or mother or employee or anything other than a human being orbiting her own purpose and answerable to herself. I love that. Another couple of quotes that stuck out to me. The paradox of volcanoes was that they were symbols of destruction, but also life. Once the lava slows and cools, it solidifies and then breaks down over time to become soil, rich, fertile soil. Fertile. And on the same note of volcanoes. She wasn't a black hole, she decided. She was a volcano, and like a volcano, she couldn't run away from herself. She'd have to stay there and tend to that wasteland. She could plant a forest inside herself. In the second to last day in the psych ward, a new group of people had been admitted. And so like the original group of people that I, when I was admitted that were there, they had, a lot of them had gone home. And so there was like maybe five new people that had been admitted and 
We were in a group therapy session and it was really heavy. And I was thinking back to like my first day being in the psych ward and how heavy that day was for me. And I was just really feeling for all of these people. And it was an expressive therapy group. And in this one, we were taking turns sharing songs that had helped us through a hard time. So I kind of just was like, I need to talk to these people and just be real. So I kind of like feel like I bore my soul to the people in the group. And I just wanted to try to give them a tiny bit of hope. And, you know, I... At the beginning of the group, I we do a check-in, like, what's your mood rating from 0 to 10, 10 being the best, 0 being the worst, and what's a word that could sum up how you're feeling right now? And my word at the beginning of the, of the class or the group was content, and I was telling everyone when I was starting to share, I was like, if I had heard myself say content on the first day that I was here, I would have rolled my eyes. Like, what the fuck? You're content? You're sitting in a psych ward. And you're... You just tried to kill yourself. And you're... And now you're content? Like, what? That doesn't make sense. So I was telling them that, you know, and... I was saying, you know, I came in and I was passionless and I was embarrassed and I was... I didn't want to be here. I I didn't want to be physically here. And I didn't want to be alive. And, you know, after nine days, they kind or I guess at that point it was eight days. This was the second to last day. So, yeah, eight days. I was like, I guess they kind of broke me down. But I've like, I've got a little spark back. I feel more like myself. And I just wanted these people to know that maybe that could happen for them too. And I shared the song Dear Heart by Megan Dia. And I talked about how this was the first year that I had actually self-harmed physically. And the lyrics in this song, there's a line that says, You're beautiful with all your scars and cuts. And those lyrics took on a new meaning because before that, I had always thought of that as like my inner scars and cuts and my inner wounds. And and now I, I think of it as both my inner and my outer. And so we so the therapist shared the song and I was just like bawling listening to the song in there just like and some of the other people in the room were bawling as well and it's a beautiful song you should go listen to Dear Heart by Megan Dia it's a beautiful song so I wanted to talk about getting visits and calls from friends and family and and also that was you know obviously a huge reason why I wanted to start this podcast because I was inspired by my friends and family. They really rallied around me and brought me treats like my friend Donna that I had mentioned in that journal entry brought me some Twizzlers and my mom brought me treats and my dad brought me some treats and 
My best friend Natalie brought me Twinkies and Natalie is, I call her my sister brain because our brains are just on the same wavelength a lot of the time. And she's just, I don't know that I could do life without Natalie or without any of these people that were rallying around me. But Natalie brought me some get well art from her little girls, which was just so cute. And she made me some little notes that have the lyrics of another Megan Diaz song on them. And it's a song called 19 Stars. Natalie and I love Megan Dia. We've been to multiple Megan Dia concerts together and we're just, we love them and they're a big part of our friendship. So one year we went to a Megan Dia concert and it was, I think it was the year that I started having suicidal ideation and, or it was like either the year of that or the year after and having what I what I would refer to as my attempts to attempt making plans, wanting so bad to do it, but not doing it is what I refer to as an attempt to attempt, which I've had many over the the past five years. So, you know, at this point in my life, they've become kind of a normal thing. That's weird to say, but it's kind of become like, oh, another one of these episodes but at that time it was still very fresh and new and scary it's scary every time but those first few times of of getting that suicidal and like almost taking action were very scary and so they sing an acoustic version of the song at the concert and it was just it was a gorgeous version of it and I was just standing in the back, like I, we were in the very back, and I was just standing in the back, and I was just bawling, just bawling, listening to the lyrics. And so the fact that Natalie wrote those on um, some notes and brought them to me was just super special. One of them that she wrote down was, stay awake, stay awake, survive. Another one that she wrote is, I need you more than you need you. I don't know, I, it's, that's one thing for me at least that's incredibly hard to believe or remember to even think about when I'm really, really low in those dark, dark suicidal ideation episodes. Okay, so I wanted to just give, like, I'm going to try to make just like a brief give you like a brief summary of my story with mental health and in future episodes I really want to talk with other people about their stories in psych wards and their stories in mental health and like I said at the beginning of the episode things that help them through and help them to keep fighting and holding on and waiting for better days to come but I figure in order to do that, you should get to know my story a little bit. So I grew up in a very religious household, very strict high demand religion, and it was not good for my soul. I know it can work for some people. For me, it did not work. Um, 
but I also grew up with, so I feel like my, my mental health was both nature and nurture, um, because on both sides of my family, there were men, there was mental health ill, like, well, I should say on both sides of my family, there were mental illnesses. So it was something that I was prone to. And so some of my earliest memories of me as a child are me being anxious at the time. I didn't know that that was what was happening. I didn't have the vocabulary for what was happening. And not until like my early 20s did I start to realize like, oh, I have this thing called anxiety. Pretty bad. And I have this thing called depression. And it, you know, it's been like many years of just researching and trying to advocate for myself and trying to figure out how to cope with these things. And then um, about a year and a half after I had my little boy, my little boy is seven right now. So a year and a half after I had him, I started getting really, really, like it was getting severe and especially around my period. So I was like Googling, why the hell is my PMS so bad? Like, why does my PMS make me want to kill myself? Like seriously, just Googling these things. And I saw premenstrual dysphoric disorder come up. And for those that don't know what that is, it's basically PMS on crack, but like on lots and lots of cracks. <laughs> um, it's a, So this is from the Mayo Clinic website, their definition. PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, is a severe, sometimes disabling extension of premenstrual syndrome. PMDD causes extreme mood shifts that can disrupt daily life and damage relationships. And boy, is that true. They also list symptoms that can stand out in PMDD as sadness or hopelessness, anxiety or tension, extreme moodiness, and marked irritability or anger. And one of these emotional and behavioral symptoms has to stand out in order for you to have PMDD. I had all four, uh, like to the extreme. And um, another thing that the Mayo Clinic website didn't men mention, but that I think is incredibly important to know, is that 34% of people with premenstrual dysphoric disorder have attempted suicide. Suicidal thoughts and behaviors are very common with premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And one of the doctors said, We've uncovered an extremely worrying rate of suicide ideation and attempts among those with PMDD, highlighting the need to take this issue seriously. These findings offer powerful evidence that the link between PMDD and suicide is independent of depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, or other mental health conditions that are known to increase ideation and attempts. It's basically your body is almost like intolerant to the rise and fall of your hormones. And so 
for me. The day I started ovulating, I would slowly start becoming more and more of a wreck. And the week before my period, it was like, I was not myself at all. And, you know, my periods would start and I would start to feel a little bit better and a little bit better. And then by the end of my period, I was like, oh, I feel like myself again. And this would just, this would happen every single month. And I would get suicidal every single month. And it's exhausting. I was going to say the name of the lady who who made that quote. Her name is Tori Eisenlor-Mole. She's an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And the lead author of the study that... Um, they did that found that 34% of people with PMDD have attempted suicide. I know a handful of people that have PMDD as well. And I can attest to this, um, whether they've attempted or it's been like scarily close or they've admitted themselves to the psych ward during like the week before their period uh, this is legit, and this is real, and and sadly, it's not the... You really have to uh, advocate for yourself. In this condition, you, you really have to research and rely on the community of other people with PMDD to really get the help you need with this. I... So, after having... Like, I went to a hormone doctor, and... Through trial and error, unfortunately, he was giving me progesterone, hoping that it would help my symptoms. At this time, I wasn't sure if it, I didn't know that it was PMDD yet. I was just like, I'm going crazy, please help. So he gave me progesterone and I was faithfully taking that every single day. And I was getting worse and worse. And... One day I took an as-needed progesterone trochee. If you don't know what a trochee is, it's like, I think that's how you say it. You put it under your tongue and let it melt. So this was like an as-needed progesterone trochee that he said, you know, if you're having a panic attack or you're starting to feel really bad, take this and it should help you. And it made me lose all control. Like it was scary and it was sad and it was traumatic and it clicked after that and I was like wait a minute I think progesterone's making me worse so I went back and I talked to him about it and I was like I don't think I should take this anymore I think it's making me worse and in fact I think I might have PMDD I've been researching about it and you know and he was like oh shit like okay so I had to figure that out on my own. And that was, I mean, we're just like, I feel like I am lucky to still be alive after that period of time where I was taking progesterone because things were getting so bad. My marriage was already strained and then COVID hits and, you know, I've been battling PMDD for, a few, I think, like two years by the time COVID hit. And 
having a really hard time with with being a mom that it just has never really come naturally to me and I was just a fucking wreck and um made it through 2020 but was looking into how in the hell can I get better from this premenstrual dysphoric disorder and I saw a lot of people were getting hysterectomies to help and so I was really lucky in that I started looking into this. I got into a doctor that my insurance accepted and that doctor was like, yes, let's let's give you a hysterectomy. And I told him all the different things I'd tried over the years and and he was like, yes, let's let's do the hysterectomy. So we did it and I feel like for about 6 months afterward, I was like riding a high I was just like, I got, I got Jeanette back. I got myself back. And I was, so after the hysterectomy, we decided to have me on an estrogen patch that I change every three and a half days. And I've noticed over time, let's see, I've had the surgery for not quite two years. It's been about about two years in a few months it'll be two years so i've noticed that if i am late in changing my estrogen patch if i throw it off by more than you know a handful of hours it affects me for like two weeks afterward and i'm suicidal and things get really bad and so I still have like that extreme sensitivity to my hormones and luckily I don't have progesterone anymore after my hysterectomy because I had a complete hysterectomy so the only I, I don't have progesterone and then the estrogen I'm receiving is through this patch that I wear for my physical health it's best if I take this estrogen patch but I still it's it's scary how much it can affect my frame of mind and so anyway um that's kind of my history and I did I I guess I left off so we made it through 2020 I got my hysterectomy beginning of 2021 um my husband and I decided to divorce to separate and it was for the best for sure we both we both know it was for the best we it was already a strained marriage and then with PMDD on top of everything on top of our both of us we had anxiety in different ways and my like depression would always get really bad in the winter and, and then add in parenting and it was just and then I didn't go fucking COVID. <laughs> it's just a shit show. So, um, but regardless of knowing that, regardless, irregardless, shit, I always get <laughs> caught up on those two words. Anyway, even though we knew this is the right decision to make for us, like we're better off just co-parenting and being friendly to each other than being a married couple that lives together. It's still such a hard adjustment and there's still a lot of grieving that goes along with it, even if it's 
even if you have confidence that it's the right decision, you know? So it's been a lot like hysterectomy, recovering from the trauma of, you know, years of suicidality and um, also recovering from growing up in a high demand religion. Um, it did a lot of damage to me. And I've even realized like this year that like, there's a thing called scrupulosity, which is basically like a form of OCD that can affect you um, in regards to religion. So I was always like, I'm not good enough. Every little thing I did wrong, oh, I'm sinning. And by wrong, I mean like a swear word. You know what I mean? It was like, I was very hard on myself. And only this past year have I realized what scrupulosity is and oh I have that <laughs> but anyway I'm not religious anymore and I'm much better off I feel very liberated and um like I am my most authentic self but the scrupulosity now still kind of plagues me but in different ways so not in the religious way but I think the same tendencies of just being really hard on myself about every little thing. Um, so I'm still really struggling with anxiety, depression, uh, a little bit of OCD here and there, um, or OCD qualities, I guess. It's just, it's exhausting. And I know that anyone listening to this that has also dealt with any one of these things knows how exhausting the fight is. And Every day, like, I often wonder, I'm like, I wonder what it's like to wake up and not have anxiety and depression and these different things that are weighing those of us that, that have these. They're weighing us down every day. They're following us around, and it's it's hard. But here's the thing that I have kind of realized over the years and getting to know other people with similar struggles to me we feel things very deeply we are very compassionate people we have a lot to offer and it's it's hard because we know we have a lot to offer and yet the depression stifles that and stifles the motivation we need in order to offer what we have. But I have learned so much from other people with mental illness battles. And I just think there is something very, I don't know what the right word is, but maybe there's something, I guess, comforting about talking there's something comforting that comes with talking to other people who struggle in similar ways and getting ideas and brainstorming and just validating and supporting each other and being like, I get it. I'm so sorry and I fucking get it. Like, so hard, you know? I feel you and I'm sorry and I'm here for you, you know? And... I always love hearing other people's coping skills, things that work for them, things they like to do. And so that's one of the things on this podcast that I 
want to be sharing when I'm talking to other people. I want them to be sharing with me and vice versa, like things that have been helping us cope. And um, one coping skill that I learned in the partial hospitalization program that I did like some months ago, I don't know, like four months ago or something, is a DBT skill. DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And there are like four main components to that. And there's mindfulness, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and emotional regulation. These are kind of the four main things in DBT. So STOP is an acronym. The S stands for STOP. Like freeze. Don't say or do anything. Just just stop. Take a step back. Actually, like physically take a step back, or if you can't do that, take a breath. Take it just take a break. Take a take a minute. Take ten seconds and observe what's going on inside you and outside of you. And observe like your thoughts and your feelings. And then, so S is stop, T is take a step back, O is observe, and P is for proceed mindfully. And consulting what in DBT they call your wise mind. And if you don't know what that means, it's basically like your rational mind and your emotional mind meeting in the middle, and that is your wise mind. So, you know, you're able to be both rational and emotional. And so, yeah, proceed mindfully. Try to make this situation that you're in, when you use the stop skill, the goal is like, okay, I'm starting to get amped up. I'm starting to, my emotions are starting to become unhealthily, like, large. And so I need to use this stop skill and try to bring myself down a little bit and bring myself to a place where I can more easily regulate my emotion. Anyway, that's something that has stuck out in my mind in hard times. So I wanted to share that, the stop skill. Stop, take a step back or take a breath, observe and proceed mindfully. And sometimes you might need to do that like five times in a row before you've got yourself down to a level of like something where you can tolerate your emotions and it's it's not going to get out of control. Because I think the thing is like we're learning like you have to feel your emotions to deal with them. You have to in order to process anything, you have to feel the emotion. You can't shut it down. And that's like a really painful process. It's like when I'm talking to my little boy, I'm like, you can be mad. You can be angry. Sure, be angry, but you can't hit while you're angry. That's not okay. And so it's the same kind of thing, you know? It's like, sure, we can be angry. We can be sad, but we need to not be getting to these unhealthy levels of like destructive behavior because of our emotions. So the stop skill is a great one. And so I wanted to share that one today just to kind of round out uh, this first episode. Give it a try. See if it works for you. Different things work for different people.
but I think it's great to have these things in our toolboxes. And as Tiffany Rowe says on Instagram, she says, like, practice these skills when you're not in distress. Practice them throughout the day when things are going fine. And that way you're slowly building these habits and it will be easier to use these skills when you're in crisis or before you even get to crisis mode. I wanted to end with a quote on vulnerability because I think vulnerability is a very important part of healing is taking off our masks and being seen for who we really are and I think vulnerability can be tricky because you don't want to just dump all your shit on someone uh, something that I learned from Brene Brown in one of her books was like choose who deserves your vulnerability choose wisely who you can trust with your vulnerability and I think that's an important thing too okay so this quote is by Gabby Bernstein and I'm probably butchering all of these names but we're just gonna go with it the quote says we put enormous effort into hiding our vulnerability but it's our vulnerability that truly heals when we feel safe enough to expose our shadows that's when we become free and I think that's so true and so important. And I am hoping that me being vulnerable and sharing my shit show and um, trying to be open about it will help other people to feel like they can be themselves around me, that they can show up and not feel like they have to hide this part of them because this is an invisible illness. These different mental illnesses are invisible and people don't understand them and there is a stigma. And not everyone has to be the person that speaks out and, and breaks the stigma. But if you feel like that is something that you want to do or something you feel safe doing, then do it by all means. You know, the more of us that that can feel safe doing that, then the more the stigma will break. But at the same time, don't do it if you don't feel safe doing it. There's no shame in keeping your battle to yourself either. We all just have to do what is going to work best for us and what creates the safest place for us to live in. But since I do feel safe opening up, I'm going to, and I hope that it's a help to other people, and I really hope that this podcast can reach people who need it, and I'm just really grateful for my support system, and I want other people to have a support system out there, and in the name of psych patients everywhere, amen.